0: Today we're going to look at another murder, a murder committed by King David. This crime was much more involved than just the ending of another man's life. The crime of adultery preceded the crime of murder. And in this story, there's a wealth of dialogue between various characters. This story of King David, found in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, is one of the most detailed accounts of any crime recorded in the Bible. There's lots to unpack, so let's get started. The Bible is incredibly interconnected with threads that run through it from beginning to end. In this podcast, I will uncover these threads, help you dig deeper into God's truth, and inspire you to live your life with greater confidence and joy. Welcome to Bible Threads with me, Dr. Bruce Becker. 2 Samuel chapter 11 begins, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. In the ancient Middle Eastern world, kings would wait until spring to wage war. There were two main reasons. From about October to March, it was much colder. And it was also the rainy season. Rain made travel for an army much more difficult. We read that David sent Joab and his army to fight against the Ammonites. So first of all, who was Joab? Joab was the commander of David's army. Today he would have the rank of army general. Joab was also David's nephew, the son of David's sister Zeruiah. Joab was an interesting military man. He was both loyal and disloyal to King David during his tenure as the general of David's army. More on Joab in a bit. So who were the Ammonites, and why was King David going to war against them? Well, there's an interesting backstory I'd like to share with you. First, the Ammonites were descendants of Lot, Abraham's nephew. They lived east of the Jordan River, about 100 miles northeast of Jerusalem. When Saul was the king of Israel, he encountered the Ammonites at a border town by the name of Jabesh-Gilead. The Ammonites, under the leadership of Nahash, had laid siege to the city. The leaders of the city asked for a treaty with the Ammonites to avoid Nahash destroying the town and killing all the people the townsfolk would agree to be Nahash's subjects. (laughs) Nahash's response to this request was a bit bizarre. Nahash said that he would be happy to make a treaty with the people with the condition that he could gouge out the right eye of every person living in Jabesh-Gilead. When King Saul heard about the siege and Nahash's treaty terms, he gathered his army and headed to the besieged city. In a brilliant military move, King Saul defeated the Ammonites and rescued the city of Jabesh-Gilead. Now, let's fast forward to King David's reign. We read in the previous chapter that in the course of time, the king of the Ammonites died and his son Hanun succeeded him as king. David thought, I will show kindness to Hanun's son of Nahash, just as his father showed kindness to me. Now, we don't know for sure what the kindness was that Nahash had shown to David. Perhaps protection from their shared enemy, King Saul? We really don't know. Anyway, David sent a delegation to Hanun to express David's sympathy to Hanun at the death of his father. This was a customary practice in ancient times. But upon their arrival, the Ammonite nobles convinced their new king, Hanun, that the men in this delegation from David were actually spies. Hanun bought into this spy theory. Then he did something bizarre. Hanun humiliated the men of the delegation. Now, I'm not going to get into the graphic details here. You can listen to or read them for yourself in 2 Samuel chapter 10. But make no mistake, the men of the delegation were humiliated. The Ammonites soon learned that because they had humiliated David's delegation, they had become a rancid stench in David's nostrils. An interesting analogy, don't you think? They figured that David might show up on their doorstep with his army. So they went out and hired 33,000 mercenary soldiers, with the majority of them being Arameans. By the way, Arameans were also known as Syrians. David didn't show up with his army. He instead sent Joab to lead the Israelite army. The Ammonite army came out of their fortified city, and the mercenary soldier army came at the Israelite army from the open country, sandwiching Joab and his troops. So Joab split the army in half, one half to fight the Ammonites, and the other half to fight the mercenary army. As the battle raged, the mercenary army saw that they were losing so they turned tail and ran. When the Ammonites saw that the mercenaries were fleeing, they retreated back behind the fortified walls of their city. Now, the Israelite army survived, but they weren't victorious. They weren't victorious until David came and led his army against the mercenary army, the Arameans. Yet, they still had the Ammonites to deal with. Now, my reason for sharing this backstory is to illustrate that when David led his army, they were victorious. That's what kings were supposed to do. That's what the Lord wanted David to be doing. Now, back to verse 1 of chapter 11. David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. For this military campaign, David again didn't lead his army. Now Joab was successful in defeating some of the Ammonites, but they had not captured the fortified city of Rabbah, known today as Amman, Jordan. Think of that. David sent Joab to lead the fight while he remained back at the palace enjoying the comforts of home. It was an unwise decision with lifelong tragic consequences. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David saw a beautiful woman bathing. He sent a servant to find out who this woman was. The servant returned with this message. She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Not only was Bathsheba married, she was married to Uriah, one of David's most trusted soldiers, one of his, quote, mighty men. And Eliam, Bathsheba's father, was also one of David's mighty men. David's mighty men were a group of 30 elite warriors. David knew both of them well. And in addition, Bathsheba's grandfather, whose name was Ahithophel, was one of David's chief counselors in his inner circle. Not to mention that King David was also married. In fact, he had taken multiple wives. What David and Bathsheba did was not an affair. It was adultery. And according to God's Old Testament law, the punishment for adultery was death. For years, David had not honored God's plan for marriage of one man, one woman. David's actions on this day did not honor his Lord either. You know, I'm reminded of the words of the Apostle Paul in his letter to the churches in Galatia. He said, So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other. David had surrendered himself to his own sinful desires. When word came to David that Bathsheba was pregnant, he hatched a cover-up plan. David sent word to Joab. Send me Uriah the Hittite. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all of the master's servants, and did not go down to his house. The next morning, David asked Uriah why he didn't go home. Uriah's response shows his own personal integrity and respect for his fellow soldiers. Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. The contrast in honor and duty and integrity between Uriah and David could not have been greater. David's cover-up hit a snag. So David told Uriah to stay one more day. That evening, David invited Uriah to dinner and drinks. In fact, David got Uriah drunk in the hopes his honorable heart would be softened and he would go home to his wife. But he didn't. David's cover-up plan hit another snag. The next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab. It was a letter sealing Uriah's fate, a letter which Uriah would personally carry back to his commander. The letter said, Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. And he did. Uriah died in battle along with some other soldiers. David's cover-up, cost the lives of his own soldiers. Adultery, lies, cover-up, murder. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. David kept the cover-up going for a year or so, he never confessed the crimes he had committed. Now, nothing is mentioned in Second Samuel about David's heart and soul at this time, but we do get some insight from a psalm that David would later write. In Psalm 32, David wrote, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. When David failed to confess his crime, his sin against God, his life became miserable. But he didn't listen to his conscience nor act upon it. There was stress, agony, and a lack of joy in his life. According to what David wrote in Psalm 32, his heart and soul were spiraling downward out of control. The Lord, who is so gracious and compassionate, was not going to let his chosen servant David go down this path any longer. So the Lord sent the prophet Nathan to David. David knew Nathan well. Earlier, Nathan had delivered a wonderful message of blessing about David and his descendants. David was told that the Savior of the world would come from his descendants. On this particular day, Nathan didn't bring a message of blessing, rather, one of rebuke. Nathan told David, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over, because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Nathan then went on to remind David that the Lord God of Israel had anointed him king, protected him from King Saul who had tried to kill him, The Lord had given the throne to David over all of Israel and Judah, and if that were not enough, the Lord would have given more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? Then Nathan shared the consequences that would come to David and his family. The sword would never depart from David's life. Family would murder family. Also, some of David's wives would be taken by other family members, just to spite David and to satisfy their own sexual desires. Being convicted of his crimes of adultery and murder, David responded, I have sinned against the Lord. Then Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you in Bathsheba will die. David wrote another psalm that reflects on this come-to-Jesus meeting with Nathan. It's Psalm 51, which is a psalm of repentance, forgiveness, and restoration. It's worth hearing these words of David. They are a window into his heart and soul. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. After David's day of repentance, forgiveness, and restoration, he went out to lead his army to capture the city of Rabbah. The Lord blessed him with victory. So I have a question for you. Have you ever heard David described as a man after God's own heart? It seems like a contradiction after hearing about David's crimes of adultery and murder. This phrase originated with the prophet Samuel. We need to back up to when Saul was king. King Saul had usurped the role of the priest by offering a burnt sacrifice. According to God's Old Testament law, kings were not permitted to serve in the role as priest. So Samuel said to Saul, You have done a foolish thing. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. The apostle Paul in the New Testament also described David this way in the book of Acts chapter 13. Paul had delivered a message to the people living in Pisidian Antioch, a town that was located in what is present-day Turkey. Saul recalled some Old Testament history After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus, as he promised. So what made David a man after God's own heart, despite his crimes? First of all, David had absolute faith and trust in God. Think of David fearlessly killing the Philistine giant Goliath. At that time, David said, The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Or think of David and the many Psalms he wrote. In the Psalms, David repeatedly speaks of loving the law of God. He wrote, For I delight in your commandments because I love them. I reach out my hands for your commandments, which I love, and I meditate on your decrees. Or think of the thankfulness that David expressed. In Psalm 100, David wrote, Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise, give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good, and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generation. That's a man, criminal though he was, a man after God's own heart. There are a couple of big takeaways for us from this story of David. First, we need to be self-aware that we are all capable of committing the same crimes of adultery and murder as David did. We never want to think that we are so strong in our faith that we would never fall as David fell. Remember, the one who thinks he stands firm, watch out, so that you do not fall. Secondly, when we fail to confess the wrongs that we have done, it will affect our heart, soul, and mind. Unconfessed sin weighs heavily on the human soul and negatively affects our relationship with our Savior. Thirdly, there is no sin, no mistake, no treachery, no crime that is too great for the Lord God to forgive. Jesus died on the cross to take away all sin. And the key word is all. And finally, we ought to pursue being a man or woman after God's own heart, trusting God, studying his word and being thankful for his blessings true crime bible edition in our next episode we'll continue with the story of david's family and the related crimes committed by his family we'll look at them together since they are all interrelated murder rape treachery death all as a consequence of david's crimes of adultery and murder. If you have any thoughts or questions about this podcast, please email me at bruce at timeofgrace.org. I'd love to hear from you. And are you familiar with the other Time of Grace podcasts? Podcasts by Pastor Mike Novotny, our Grace Talks video devotional speakers, Amber Albee Swenson's podcast called Little Things, and CL Whiteside's non-microwave truth. Check them out You'll be glad you did. Thanks for listening and God bless.